last Monday. Remember what last Monday was, six days ago, seven days ago, whatever, however you count that? Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? Um, I was wondering, I, I forgot to ask, both uh, uh, Pastor Darius and Dan Moose, have you, did you, when you were in Montgomery, did you go to Dr. King's church? Yeah. Have you been there? Did you both have? Uh, it was a wonderful experience, and it's fun to just kind of be there where he spoke. And one of the things that you can do is go online and listen uh, to some of his sermons. Some of his sermons are very well known, like the, you know the name of the most famous one, probably? I have a dream, yeah, I have a dream. When he he's, uh, just has some great lines in there, like I dream of a day when our children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the... By the content of the character. You all know it. It's a famous sermon. It has reverberated throughout our country for a lot of good reasons. And this morning, as we open the Word of God to Matthew 5, we come to an even more famous sermon. It might not be as well known in America today as Dr. King's sermon is, but globally, this sermon that Jesus preached is the most well known most studied sermon in the history of the entire world. No one has ever, or no, no sermon has ever been more digested and processed and repeated and studied than this one right here. So it is a, an incredible privilege for us to come to Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 to look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to read it out loud, it would take about 10 minutes to read, and I think it's probably a, con a condensed version, maybe. We're not sure. It's probably a condensed version of a longer set of messages, maybe the seminar Jesus was giving up in that area where he was preaching. And it's been boiled down to this. What I do know is that these words in these chapters are exactly what God wanted us to have. In his inspired word, he's given us this for our benefit and for his glory. Last week, I issued a challenge to you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 once or twice a week. And I know some of you are doing that. I've already heard some feedback about it. And if you have experienced it like I have, you find it on the one hand inspiring and at the same time a little bit terrifying <laughs> It is by design, it's supposed to inspire us. It's also, I think, supposed to make us feel pretty uncomfortable as we read it because it challenges who we are. It challenges our heart and the attitudes inside of us. It challenges how we interact with the people around us. Have you experienced that yet? Keep working through it. I, I, I want to continue that challenge to read these chapters once or twice a week from now until Easter as we walk through this. And let's do as much as we can to soak in this message from Jesus to allow it to change us. As we read it and feel uncomfortable by it, it makes me aware of how far, how far short I fall from it, and yet uh, how God can enable us to live it out. 
The setting of the Sermon on the Mount is found in the first two verses, which simply says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Let's take a moment and pray over God's word and ask him to enlighten this word to our hearts. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to open this and read the words of Jesus. Thank you for preserving this for us, for giving us these these life-changing truths. As we come to them today, Lord, would you please shine your light into our hearts and minds. Help us to see and understand what you have for us. And help us to see how this lands in our hearts and what we need to do and change to walk fully with you. In Jesus' name, amen. The words of the Sermon on the Mount are so challenging, the bar is set so high, that over the years, many people have had different ideas about the purpose of it. Some have said, well, Jesus was just preaching to Jews. It's not for us. It's just how to live out the law. I don't think that's true, particularly given the area where Jesus delivered these messages. It was an area with a lot of Gentile population. Others have said, this is a picture of the millennial kingdom. Someday, after the great tribulation, during the millennial reign of Christ, this is what it'll look like. What? Okay, it may be. That's great. But, but Jesus is clearly speaking to actual people right in front of him. This is meant for us. And, and I'm, I'm not kidding, actually. There's like 20 or 30 different official views on what the Sermon on the Mount is. Some think it's just a description of the idealized Christian. Like, if anyone were to ever get it all right, this is what they would look like. That doesn't really fit either, because this teaching is for me and for you and how we live. I actually think it is for us. I think Jesus is calling us to this lifestyle, calling us to have this in our hearts and minds, what we read in these chapters. As we do and we realize, well, okay, so that's a high road to walk on. We fall short in many ways. What's the answer when we fall short? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. We turn away from our sin and we get back on that road and and we realize with Christ in me and I'm in Christ in union with him and his Holy Spirit has been given to me and I have the word of God, we can do this. We can take in the words of Jesus and live them out in our lives. The sermon begins with talking about issues of the heart because when Jesus changes us, he changes us from the inside out. So first we're changing the attitudes of our heart. Uh, To to look at this, we're going to read only the first four of the Beatitudes. They're traditionally called the Beatitudes. I I like to call them the best attitudes. Um, Beatitudes, a weird word. I don't use it ever in day-to-day life uh, unless I'm talking about this. But these are like the best attitudes 
of the kingdom of God. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. And he gives four more that we'll look at next week. How many of you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? You heard of those? How many commandments are listed in the Ten Commandments? Do you know? All right, ten. So everyone's like, that's a trick question. That's got to Ten of them. It's interesting when you look at the Ten Commandments. There's ten commandments listed, but you can kind of break them in two groups. The first four are commandments about our relationship with God, and then the next six are commandments about our relationships with each other. Jesus summarized it by just saying, love God with all your heart and, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? When we come to this list of Beatitudes, you can kind of break them into the same two groups. The first four, it's not as clean, but the first four are mostly about our relationship and our attitude toward God. And the next four that we'll see next week are more about our attitude toward the people around us. And each one starts with, blessed are. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? That is something people talk about a lot these days. You can find t-shirts and plaques with blessed on that, on there, blessed life. People talk about being blessed. And I think for some, being blessed, there's almost the secular version of that. It's like, this combination of the American dream with a little Christian ethic mixed together, right? And that's blessed. There is a, a really clear sense which people would maybe consider themselves a blessed, but it not have anything to do with God at all. And you hear people talking about that. If I'm thinking of myself as blessed, I'm in the center of that picture usually. And maybe I have, I'm blessed because I have family. I'm blessed because I have faith. I'm blessed because I have friends. Blessed because I have some, some money. Uh, blessed because maybe God's even over here helping me, but it's still a me-centered view. And I thought, what would it look like to have the world's beatitudes, the best attitudes as people see them in the world around us? And I thought of a few I want to share. Blessed are the rich. They have it all. See that mentality out there. Blessed are people that have enough friends. They don't need to meet new people. <laughs> Blessed are those who pursue what they want. They're living their best life now. Blessed are the bullies. No one confronts them. Isn't that true? Blessed is the influencer with a million followers, for their account shall be monetized. We, we have these this ideas of what it means to be blessed, but when we come to Jesus and we look at these Beatitudes, they're so different than the values of the world. Jesus takes all of it and flips it upside down. When we come to him, everything that we think we value gets changed. And, and we become, if we embrace Christ, we become 
remarkably different from the world around us, not even similar anymore. Jesus turns us upside down, changes us from the inside out, and we become different in Christ, real change. See, in the Bible, to be blessed doesn't have much to do with being happy. It doesn't have much to do with how I feel. It has a lot more about how God feels about me. What's God's mindset toward me? If God loves me, accepts me, and considers me his own, I'm blessed. Doesn't matter how I'm feeling that day. It's about understanding the heart and mind of God. And that's an incredible blessing. I, I like to, uh, I have it, my advisor from seminary used to phrase it like this. Instead of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, he simply said, God blesses the poor in spirit. God blesses. I think it's a great way to reframe and understand these beatitudes. So I want to use that today, um, that God blesses. And as we look at each of the four of them, we'll consider how God blesses us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time on the first one than the next three, because I think the first one about being poor in spirit is foundational to the other ones. So if we're well along in the sermon and you're going, he's still on the first one, how long are we going to be there? Don't worry, I'll cover the other three more quickly. God blesses the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another way to say it, those who are in, poor in spirit will enjoy God's favor by inheriting the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of and admit our spiritual bankruptcy before God. See, God is actually not poor in spirit. God is the picture of great wealth. I want to give you some quotes from Isaiah. I think Jesus was preaching uh, principles from Isaiah in preaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, several of them. And in Isaiah 66, it says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you see that contrast? God is like, I'm not poor. I have everything. It's all mine. And the person I honor is the person who realizes it's not yours. We have nothing before the Lord. We have no right to boast. We come to him in poverty. And that's a challenge if we're honest. I think about my prayer times. When I pray to the Lord, am I talking only mostly about what I want, what I need, what I think I deserve, and how he should meet my needs? Or am I coming to the Lord in poverty of spirit to talk about what he wants, help me discover what you want, and how I can submit my will to yours? That's a big difference. And it's very easy for me to not be poor in spirit, but to think much of myself. Sometimes it shows up in the way that I pray. 
I don't bring a whole lot of value to God. I contribute sin that I still struggle with. I have the image of God, but it's kind of crumpled up and messed up in me, and I just give that to him. He's the one who gives me value and love and his spirit and purpose and meaning and faith. God brings the value to my relationship with him. When I forget that and I think too much of myself, I'm no longer poor in spirit. But God loves and blesses the poor in spirit. I love this passage from Isaiah 55 when he talks about how much God loves to bless us when we come to him poor. It says this, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. To be poor in spirit means I come to God with nothing and he says, oh, you bring nothing to the table? You can order anything you want off the menu of my goodness. It's on me. He loves when we come to him in our poverty and in our weakness, and depend fully and completely on him who supplies all things. Jesus illustrated poor in spirit really well in Luke chapter 18. He told this story about two men. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all I get. Jesus went on. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We don't do poor in spirit very well in American Christianity. I, I, my wife and I have this conversation. I get perturbed when I listen to Christian music on the radio because it doesn't, it's not very poor in spirit. A lot of it's about like me and I mean, it's like I'm in the center. If, if this was a meal, I'm, I'm the main dish. I want to be affirmed. I want this to be about me and I'll take a little bit of the holiness of God as a side to me. I'm not really in the mood for the purpose or mission of the church today. You know, we kind of select 
and end up with this me-centered, almost narcissistic Christian worship culture that's it's weird. And I so appreciate the, the worship songs that we, that we sing here because it's about God. It's not about me. It's about keeping Christ the center, the head of the church, the head of my family, and the head of my life as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's three others I'll cover more quickly. Blessed are those who mourn. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We mourn over, over a variety of things sometimes. We don't normally mourn, but when we do, we often mourn over the pain of living in a fallen world. Uh, we pause to pray today. We, we struggle and we grieve and mourn over sickness, over loss. Particularly, we mourn when there is death. If we lose someone that we loved, we mourn and we grieve. And it strikes us deep in our soul. We can't believe when someone we love dies, even though... You know, the reality is everyone dies. Everyone dies. But it strikes us so deeply in our hearts that we mourn and grieve. And Jesus did too. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. The other thing that causes us sometimes to grieve and mourn and have sorrow over is when we come face to face with our own sin. And the two are not unrelated. Paul told us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. All sin ultimately leads to death. That's why death exists in our world, because the world has fallen. And when we see sin in us, we grieve and we mourn. That's why the gospel is good news, because it comes to people aware of their sin, grieving and mourning, and says, look at Jesus on the cross. He took our sins so that we can experience forgiveness and life and grace. And yet that path to embracing the forgiveness of God involves mourning over our sin. In James chapter 4, he said, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we grieve over our sins, we're beginning to understand the impact of our sin on our Savior who gave his life, who bore our sins on the cross. God blesses those who mourn. He blesses those for mourn, who mourn by comforting us. God blesses the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is an interesting word. It's, its closest other word that makes more sense to us, I think, is the word gentleness. 
the word gentleness makes sense to us. In Matthew 18, it says at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest one? Who stands highest? Who gets to the top of the hill? And he called a little child who had been standing among them, and he said, I'll tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God blesses the meek. It's not the strength that we could have. It's the meekness, the gentleness that we choose to have. God loves it. And he blesses us when we treat one another and, and come to him with meekness and gentleness. It is actually expected of us as believers and even required of us. Gentleness is one of the requirements for someone to be an elder in a church. It must be a leading characteristic for leadership. Philippians 4, verse 5, he said, Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. In Ephesians 5, he said, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Meekness and gentleness is a beautiful distinction of followers of Jesus. And God blesses the meek. God blesses those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. There's a longing for righteousness in this world. There's plenty of unrighteousness and injustice all around. It's so easy, just open Twitter, to call out unrighteousness and call for righteousness and it, and it comes with this tone of just human anger and human frustration, doesn't it? We want righteousness, but when I just look from me to places in the world where I want to see it, I end up getting angry. I end up wanting to manipulate change. Again, it's a picture without God at the center of it. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness have a God-centered hunger and a God-centered thirst, knowing that righteousness comes from him. God will bring righteousness into this world. Jesus will later say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. What, what would it look like if this week, just for this week, one week, if you lived your life fully immersed in poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, and, and just deeply hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God, would you be different than you were last week? Would you be different from your neighbors and coworkers? God has called us to be remarkably different by putting Christ first 
and by enjoying the fact that God loves those attitudes in us. So I pray that this week we will, we will focus on these things and God will build them in us. Some of these, by the way, come as things get stripped away from our lives. We grieve when we lose something we didn't want to lose. We become poor and poor in spirit when something we thought we loved is taken. We become meek when we get put in our place. But all of these things can also come by choice. Because I want to be like Jesus, I'm going to choose to approach God being poor in spirit, being meek in my heart, mourning over my sin, and hungering and thirsting for his righteousness. Let's choose to put his kingdom first and see what God would do and how he'll change us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible message from Jesus. These attitudes are not my default normal mode, Lord. This is not the natural bent of my heart. But it's how you want me to be in Christ. It's how you transform us to be as you pour your word into our soul and over our minds, as you fill us with your Holy Spirit as you show us the words and teaching and example of Jesus, help us, Lord, to open our hands and become more like him. Help us, Lord, in Christ to become remarkably different. In Jesus' name, amen.